Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue subject matter. I'm Carrie Ann, a graduate student in the Department of Genetics. And I'm Emma, a third-year graduate student in the Cell Biology Department. This YJBM sex education episode is part of our series devoted to our 2020 issue on sex and reproduction. Today, we will be talking about the basic biology of fertilization, which is a nice combination of sex and reproduction. We want to put a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode, as I'm sure you've picked up on from the topic of this episode, we are going to be talking about um, sex and the existence of sex and some of the biological details of what can happen as a result of sex. We also need to acknowledge gender is a spectrum separate from biological sex. Not all women have a uterus or fallopian tubes or produce eggs, and not all men produce sperm. Some men may produce eggs, some women may produce sperm, but throughout this episode, we may use the terms male and female to refer to cisgendered males and cisgendered females. So in today's episode, we're going to start off by um, giving you all a basic introduction to fertilization, so the who, what, where, when, and why. Um, and if you want to learn about how, you can check out the um, Sex for Pleasure episode of this series. Then we're going to be talking a little bit about how society's influence and the sexism that exists within our society has actually impacted the way that we talk about the process of fertilization. And then we're going to be getting into the nitty gritty step by step, what happens when the sperm and the egg meet and fuse to become a zygote. So I wanted to start off by setting the scene for fertilization. We're going to go through the who, what, where, when, and why. Okay, so first, who are our protagonists in this story? Well, they're gametes, which are our reproductive cells, um, so the sperm and the egg. Gametes are haploid cells, which means that they have half the copies of or one copy of each chromosome. And these cells are generated through a process called meiosis. And so the first gamete we're going to be talking about is the egg. And the egg will provide its genetic material as well as all of the organelles and all of the cytosol to the future zygote. Um, one of my personal favorite fun facts about um, the egg is that it's providing all of the mitochondria to the developing zygote. And so mitochondrial DNA is actually passed down maternally. The other gamete that we're going to be talking about today is the sperm. And it is a motile cell that has to swim to the egg. And the main thing that it's bringing to the party is essentially just its genetic material. So to talk about the what of fertilization, what is fertilization? Uh, fertilization is the process by which these two haploid genome, one from the sperm and one from the egg, come together to create a complete diploid genome. Um, so two copies of each gene. Um, the result of this fusion is a zygote 
which will then divide and eventually become a baby animal for whatever or plant or whatever thing is being created. In our specific case, we're going to be talking about humans. So for the why of fertilization, or actually just why of reproduction in general. Um, so the goal of reproduction is sort of in the name, it's to you know, reproduce and replicate yourself, kind of. You know, if you wanted to exactly replicate yourself, you would have to do asexual reproduction, um, but we humans don't have the ability to do that. And so we have to engage in sexual reproduction whereby we combine you know, genes from two different individuals to propagate the species. Another um, goal of reproduction is to improve evolutionary fitness of a species. Um, so during gamete formation, um, there's this cool phenomenon called crossing over that happens that essentially mixes up different combinations of genes on each chromosome to provide some more genetic variation in the species. And then you get even more genetic variation because you're combining um, the DNA from two different individuals to make the zygote. And so this increase in genetic variation of a species um, improves the chances of survival and ability for adaptation um, for the species over time. And so reproduction is actually a really, really important process, not just to make more people, but also to ensure um, fitness as you know, the world changes around us. Okay, so last we're going to talk about the where and the when of fertilization. And these are actually really closely tied together. So the human egg can actually only be fertilized um, when it is present in the oviduct, which is the part of the fallopian tube that is closest to the ovary. Um, and so this is approximately a 12 to 24 hour period, and it's known as ovulation. Um, I personally didn't realize that this is what ovulation was until I was doing the research for this episode. Um, and it's so crazy to me that there's this, you know, spatiotemporal re um, regulation of fertilization. You know, there's this very small window um, in which fertilization can actually occur. I was going to jump in here and say it's like really crazy how much we don't even know about our own bodies um, as as women, about our own biology. That's true. Shout out to the American sex education system. Um, yeah, I, as I've gotten older, I've realized there are a lot of things that I missed, even just about the basic biology, you know. Um, it's like, it's like, oh, I knew this was a thing, but I didn't know, you know, biologically speaking, like what it meant. Um, what the correct terms for things? Yeah, totally. I'm constantly learning new words. <laughs> so when we're talking about the where, you know, obviously the oviduct is pretty much as far into the female reproductive system as you can get. And so the sperm has to actually travel quite a ways to get there. And so sperm are very tiny. They are around 50 microns in size. Um, Another, you know, fun fact, the egg is about 0.12 millimeters. So it's a lot bigger, you know, because it was contributing a lot more to the party than the sperm. So the sperm actually have to traverse about a 17 centimeter, give or take a few centimeters, depending on your specific, I don't know, reproductive system size. 
in order to make it from the cervix all the way to the oviduct. And so, you know, it's crazy to me that this ever happens in the first place. Um, You get hundreds of millions of sperm at the start at the cervix and only a few hundred actually make it to the egg because they have to traverse, you know, such a far distance and they're so small. And so in my head, I'm like, I cannot believe that this ever happens. And once the sperm make it to the egg, you know, we're going to talk about in a little bit, like there's even more that has to happen. Okay. So that is the who, what, where, when, and why of fertilization. So now jumping in, um, one of our goals of this episode is to dispel some of the notions we may have had when we were learning about sex education in school, in elementary school, middle, high, or even in college. And so as Kelsey Castle and Wei Ying write in the introduction to the September issue of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine, there are these gaps in medical and biological knowledge. Um, And these gaps are really along gender lines, um, particularly in regards to reproductive and sexual health. And what's amazing is that basic biology um, and basic biological research has not escaped these gendered gaps either. And so there's this paper by Emily Martin, who is an anthropologist at Johns Hopkins University, and it's called The Egg and the Sperm how science has constructed a romance based on stereotypical male-female roles. Emily Martin published this in Signs in 1991. And at the time, this was a pretty um, groundbreaking, explosive paper. Um, This sort of really brought to light these stereotypical male and female roles that we've given the egg and the sperm. And there are lots of examples that she points out. It's a really good paper. I'd encourage anyone to read it. And a couple of the examples are that a lot of times sperm is put before egg. And so we might subconsciously say the sperm and the egg instead of the egg and the sperm. And this translates to writing in papers where the male gamete is put in front of the female gamete. What is even more pervasive is the use of active and passive voice when describing the sperm versus the egg. And so sperm are all often talked about with action verbs such as penetrate and swims and journeys. And it's this great knight in shining armor that's going to go rescue this egg that is just sort of lying around. It needs to needs to be rescued. It's just sort of sitting there doing nothing um, until a sperm comes along. And this is just not the case. The, act, the egg actually plays a very active role, which has come into light in research in the last um, few decades or so. Another aspect of this is that a lot of times the eggs are described as degenerating or as aging and and that each month a female loses um, an egg. And this is considered wasteful because females are born with the number of eggs that they will ever have versus the males are constantly producing sperm. What's crazy is that sperm is not considered wasteful. Um, As Emma just said, there'll be hundreds of millions of sperm produced at a time, and yet 
only one may reach an egg. And so that is a lot more wasteful than one egg a month, I think. And, and so it's just a lot of these um, concepts that are along gender lines that continue in the literature. And so this paper by um, Emily Martin, nearly 30 years old. And in 2014, there was a, another study done. Uh, it was called the Fertilization Fairy Tale, which I think is a great title, an analysis of gendered language used to describe fertilization in science textbooks from middle school to medical school. And the first author is Lisa Campo Engelstein and Nadia L. Johnson, published in Cultural Studies of Science Education. So what they've noted is that things have gotten a lot better and the 20 years gap between these two papers. But instead of always putting the sperm first or making the egg seem meaningless or wasteful, they just don't say a lot about the egg or about the female reproductive tract in general. And part of the reason this is, is there's not as much research on the eggs themselves. Um, you can kind of imagine it's a lot harder to, to get an egg than it is to get a bunch of sperm to study in a lab. But now that we do know more about the biology of the egg, it's still being left out of the textbooks. And so that's something um, that needs to be worked on in the future. And so as we're going through this podcast, we're going to try to do our best to focus on the active role of the egg and sort of dispel this fertilization fairy tale. But um, in talking about this already, it's amazing how ingrained this language is. And so I already feel myself slipping into describing the sperm as active and swimming and it goes on this epic journey, which is how we originally learned it. And so I'll be actively working to not slip into this language. Yeah, same here, you know, even just in my little, you know, intro to the who, what, where, when, why of fertilization, you know, it's, it's hard not to slip into those things. Even, you know, you're saying the whole idea of saying the sperm and the egg and no one ever says the egg and the sperm. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. I never even realized that. So, you know, it's, it's honestly amazing how much like society sometimes impacts science in ways that you don't really expect. Um, and I think that this is a really great example um, because if you were looking at this process simply from a scientific perspective, in my opinion, you would put the egg before the sperm because, you know, sure the sperm has to get to the egg. That's great. But once it gets there, you know, it's just dropping off some DNA and then the egg sort of like does the rest. Yeah, it's so interesting and yeah, very challenging to try to break out of that box that we've sort of been trained to be in. Absolutely, and I think it's hard for researchers who work on this as well. Um, in some of the articles it would point out they were talking about the active role of the egg and yet they'll, you still switch into putting the sperm before the egg. Or one thing I'll talk about in a second or when we say like the, the sperm penetrates the egg, instead of saying the egg and sperm fuse together because they're both active. And so that's still like a phrase used throughout the literature. So with these gendered stereotypes in mind, we'll be now jumping in to six steps in a good amount of detail for how exactly the process of fertilization occurs. When Emma and I were first thinking of how to best present these steps of fertilization, we thought it would be fun to do a planet Earth style journey through fertilization to capture how amazing this biology is. 
We would like to thank friend of YJBM, Jim McIntyre, for providing the deep British voice needed to capture the spirit of David Attenborough. Step one, the sperm travels to the egg. So do you see what we did there with step one? We already fell into our gendered trap of the sperm making its way to the egg. And so this meeting of egg and sperm is going to be taking place in the fallopian tube. And as Emma said at the top, this is a huge, huge distance. And both the egg and the sperm must travel. Everyone forgets that the egg has to get there. And so the way that the egg gets there is that there are these fimbriae in the fallopian tube that actively sweep the ovarian surface and then take the egg into the fallopian tube, along with um, a bunch of other supportive cells. I'm imagining this like little fingers just like pulling the egg along. Is that, do you think that that's accurate? That's what I imagine as well. Now that the egg can um, be in the right spot, how does the sperm get there? So from a starting 150 to like 600 million sperm that are released, only like 100 of them will make it to the fallopian tube. And some actually can get there in like minutes. And that is like crazy fast. For others, it takes a lot longer, but there are a couple that will get there like in a couple minutes. And clearly that is way too fast for sperm to have swam their way there. So there are mechanisms in the female reproductive system that aid in this quick transport. Contractions of the cervix and the uterus and the fallopian tubes themselves actually can propel the sperm through the reproductive tract and into the fallopian tube. And that is a major way that the sperm can get there so fast. Another active area of research um, that I, I really went down a rabbit hole trying to figure out was chemoattractants. And so Emma and I, I we were having fun um, reading an old textbook and got to reading about this story in the early 2000s. There was this whole saga of literature released about the lily of the valley smell that may be released by the egg that would attract the, the sperm to it. And this lily of the valley smell is due to a chemical called virginal, which smells like lilies. I feel the need to jump in here and say that when we started down this rabbit hole, we didn't know that virginal was the smell of lilies. Otherwise, I think we might have been a little more skeptical of this rabbit hole at the beginning. Yeah, no, we were just like, okay, cool. Chemoattractant. <laughs> um, and turns out it smells like lilies. And also turns out it binds this receptor called HOR17-4. Um, this is a GPCR receptor and it's an olfactory receptor. So who would have thought that sperm have olfactory receptors? Like, have you ever thought about sperm smelling? And so this olfactory receptor um, was identified and characterized by Mark Spear and colleagues. It was published in Science in 2003. And then there was this follow-up study in 2004 where um, they identified um, virginal as binding this receptor and also found compounds that antagonized the receptor. So if they had human subjects smell virginal and then smell the antagonist undecanol and then virginal again, you could and smell virginal the second time. But the problem with this story is that the human egg um, hasn't been found to actually release virginal, at least not 
at high enough levels for chemotaxis. And so in vitro, you can add some virginal and the sperm will swim to it. Um, looks great, but it doesn't seem physiologically relevant. And then we found this, I don't know if I should call it hilariously or problematically titled paper. Um, okay, so here it goes. The title is Human Male Superiority and Olfactory Sensitivity to the Sperm Attractant Odorant Virginal. So it turns out that men who have this receptor on their sperm, this HOR17-4, they also have it in their noses, and so do females. But men can smell virginal at higher sensitivity than females. With a sample size of 250 males and females, men could detect it at 13 parts per billion, while women could only detect it at 26 parts per billion. This paper was published by Peter Olson and Matthias Laska in Chemical Senses in June of 2010. I'm like honestly kind of happy to find out that this whole saga didn't end up being physiologically relevant. You don't wish that your egg smelled like lilies? You know what? I was never anything that I had ever considered um, as an option in the first place. <laughs> I mean, I think I'd rather have my eggs smell like progesterone than lilies. Well, it turns out that uh, progesterone released by the cumulus cells um, is the main chemoattractant. So there's so much literature on this. Um, and it seems like the oocyte is releasing a tons of different types of chemoattractants. And I sort of got lost with which ones were the most important other than progesterone released by the cumulus cells. So identifying and characterizing the importance of each of these compounds is an active area research. And what I think is actually really fun is, Emma, do you want to guess what animal chemotaxis of sperm was discovered in? Let's see. I don't know. I'm going to guess. So I work in a yeast lab and we use salmon sperm to transform cells. So I'm going to guess salmon for no good reason. No, that's a great guess. Um, oh, really? Uh, yeah, 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 no, that's a great guess. Just kidding. I, that was a really educated guess that I just made. We use salmon sperm um, when making injection mixes for C. elegans to oh, make transgenic worms. Salmon sperm, such a good carrier DNA. Yeah, really good stuff. But the reason it's such a good guess is because uh, it's a marine organism. It was actually sea urchins, which is an animal I don't think about often. Sea urchin sperm is used in a lot of research in sea urchin eggs. And they're big, um, but also they're released into the vast expanse of the ocean. Sea urchins just release their gametes out into the world and all that water. And so how can, we think it's crazy that a sperm can find an egg within the confines of the human reproductive system because they're so small. So how can they find each other in the vast expanse of the ocean? Um, so it seems like chemoattraction for these marine organisms, reproductive success is clearly going to be important. Fun fact, sea urchins make another appearance later down in the steps because I can't do a podcast without including weird animal facts. Wow, I would definitely not have guessed sea urchins. I feel like they're so unassuming sitting there, but it, it does make sense, you know, when you dilute your gametes in the vast expanse of the ocean. They have to find each other somehow. And that concludes step one, the journeys of the egg and the sperm to meet each other. So now that the egg and the sperm 
have made their way to each other and have made contact in the oviduct, what happens next? Step two, the zona pellucida. Okay, so once the sperm and the egg have met one another in the oviduct, it is time for the second step of the fertilization process. Um, And so essentially the sperm will meet the egg and swim initially through a layer of follicles that surround the egg. Um, These cells have roles in earlier parts of the menstruation cycle, but for this particular story, the sperm just swims right through those cells to get to the egg. And so the egg is surrounded by a layer called the zona pellucida. So this is a specialized layer of extracellular matrix that surrounds the developing oocyte. And um, zona pellucida in Latin means transparent zone. Um, If you take an image of a oocyte, you can actually see the zona pellucida surrounding it. And so that's sort of where the name comes from. And it is 15 to 20 microns thick in humans. So it's actually a pretty thick layer. The zona pellucida has a few different functions, but its main function is to regulate interactions between the egg and the sperm. And it's also really important to prevent polyspermy, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The zona pellucida is really important for female fertility. Mice that are lacking some of the proteins that make up the zona pellucida are completely infertile. And there have been cases in humans that have been reported where um, individuals with a disease called genuine empty follicle syndrome um, have this disease because they have zona pellucida free or zona pellucida fragile eggs. So another important role of this layer is to provide protection for the egg, um, both before and after ovulation. Um, When I was researching this section, I came across this part that said that the developing embryo actually has to hatch, quote unquote, out of the zona pellucida once it reaches the uterus in order to be implanted. And I thought that was pretty cool. That's a really cute word choice. I really like that. I know, me too. It's actually, it provides a really good visual. Um, if, you, if you Google embryo hatching out of a zona pellucida, you can, you can see like a picture of this and it is exactly what's happening. I, going back to your portrait, when you're talking about like, if you take a picture of the egg and you can see the zona pellucida, it made me think back to Emily, Emily Martin's work. There's this one thing she notes where it's called portrait of a sperm. And it's um, a sperm, you know, beside a ginormous egg relative to the size of the sperm. And um, she says this is like calling a portrait of a flea when it's like just a dog's back. And so I really liked that. <laughs> um, so portrait of the zona pellucida. Yeah, I mean, scale is is so important here. And we can recall that our sperm are only 50 microns. And so the you know, zona pellucida itself is a half the length of the sperm. So it's fairly thick layer relative to the size of the sperm. And, you know, the size of the the oocyte is even bigger. As I was researching more about the zona pellucida, um, I, my, you know, inner biochemistry nerd was really freaking out because this is, you know, this big, thick protein layer. 
And so I became very curious about what this layer is made out of. In humans, um, the zona pellucida is made out of four different glycoproteins named ZP1, ZP2, ZP3, and ZP4. Luckily, they were very consistent with the names. These are um, proteins that are all very heavily glycosylated. They have lots of different glycosylation sites, including sites for mannose and N-acetylglucosamine and beta-galactosyl residues. And this glycosylation is really important for sperm-egg binding and interactions, which we'll discuss in more detail later. Interestingly, Different organisms have different numbers of zona pellucida proteins. Um, mice is a very common mammalian system that's used to study a lot of things, including fertilization, and they only have three ZP proteins. So they have one, two, and three, but they don't have four. Um, and then there are some organisms that have more of these proteins. So Carrie Ann, since you asked me a question in the last section, I figured I'd ask you one now. There is an organism out there that has over 30 ZP proteins. What organism do you think that is? Is it marine? Yes. Is it? Interestingly, I've realized that a lot of this research has been done in marine life. Oh my, yeah, I read this snippet about how um, scientists at Woods Hole, um, they had a shirt one year, um, which was basically like all fertilization cartoons was like their theme for one MBL summer. So yeah, it seems like marine research is where it's at for, for this stuff. So it's marine. Um, okay, I'm going with sea urchin again. No, <laughs> although the sea urchin has played a huge role in our understanding of the fertilization process. Um, in this case, it's actually a mollusk. So mollusks have over 30 ZP proteins. So um, in terms of the structure of these proteins and the structure of the zona pellucida, um, EM imaging has revealed that um, this is a spongy or a porous network of proteins. And this is due to, essentially, if you were to zoom in a little bit further, um, adjacent wide and tight meshworks of these ZP proteins. So you'll have very dense areas and very loose areas that make it look spongy and porous. And again, the inner biochem nerd in me was like, okay, well, how do these proteins polymerize to create the ZP? I, this hasn't been completely figured out, but we do know that um, these ZP proteins have two um, aminoglobulin-like domains. Um, these are essentially domains that are just a bunch of globular stacks of beta sheets. Um, they're called ZPN and ZPC, so one on the N terminus and C terminus of the protein. And this domain has, these domains have a series of conserved cysteines that have intramolecular disulfide bonds. ZPN is the one that is involved in polymerization. The exact details of how these modules work together or work with other modules on other proteins for polymerization is still being determined. But in some cases, for some ZP proteins, um, the polymerization involves exposure of hydrophobic patches near the ZP module, um, but the details might be different for other ZP proteins. Overall, it seems as though um, there are polymers of ZP2 and ZP3 that are organized into filaments that are then cross-linked by ZP1. Um, however, again, the details of this also aren't clear. It seems as though it's a little bit more complex than that. So essentially these proteins make 
this dense meshwork that surrounds the egg and is really important for regulating the interactions with the sperm. Step three, capacitation. So the whole time that the sperm are traveling through the female reproductive tract, they're gaining the capacity to be able to fuse with the egg. This isn't just an automatic ability that they have. And so this process of gaining the capacity to fuse with the egg is called capacitation. And it's a really subtle change. There's no big morphological difference. I guess maybe the biggest noticeable difference is in how they move and they become hyperactive. So the tail starts wiggling more and the head goes side to side. Um, and so it's just a, a lot faster sort of swimming state. And something I didn't know before starting research for this episode was that sperm are considered transcriptionally inactive. Their chromatin is actually really dense. And while they have a ton of mRNA and non-coding RNAs, um, and there's some research that there might be a tiny bit of transcription, it's generally recognized that they're transcriptionally inactive. So any process that's going to result in a widespread change, pretty big cellular change that allows the sperm to be able to fuse with the egg is going to have to happen through signaling cascades instead of through transcription, which is a pretty important distinction. The sperm head is covered with a bunch of glycosylated proteins and a bunch of cholesterol. And this sort of protective coat on its plasma membrane would prevent it from binding um, to the zona pellucida and allowing the acrosomal reaction, step four, up next to happen. So this process was actually described in the textbook that I have been using to learn about this um, process, Boron and Bopep Medical Physiology. It was described as poorly understood. Um, so a lot of the mechanistic de details are still being worked out, but a couple of things that are pretty well recognized is that you need to get rid of cholesterol and you need to reorganize your plasma membrane. Sperm contain these CASPER channels, and that stands for cation channel of the sperm. And these channels are really important for chemotaxis. I actually forgot to mention them in section one, but they're also very important for capacitation. So when um, they're activated by prostaglandins, which are in the seminal fluid, or by progesterone in the oviduct, um, and this allows an influx of calcium to occur. And this influx of calcium, I feel like I'll be saying influx of calcium a lot during all of these reactions because it's basically always calcium. When in doubt, calcium influx. Um, it causes a signaling cascade within the cell, which results in cholesterol being kicked out of the plasma membrane. So the cholesterol is not going into the sperm cell, it's getting kicked off and is going extracellular. So it's being released into the female reproductive tract. And albumin and high density lipoproteins are able to sort of suck up this cholesterol like a sponge. And it's really crazy the amount of cholesterol that's um, in sperm, in seminal plasma and on the sperm, and it doesn't have any relation to your blood plasma cholesterol levels. The amount of cholesterol and the ability to get rid of cholesterol is really important for male fertility. And so if you look at your ratio of cholesterol to phospholipid levels in sperm, if you have a higher ratio, meaning you have less 
phospholipid relative to the amount of cholesterol, you're not going to be as fertile. And so this is a big marker that they use for looking at sperm fertility is this ability to get rid of cholesterol and how fast you can get rid of cholesterol is also really important. That's so interesting. I never would have thought that something like that was important, but the more you know. I know, me either. All these tiny, tiny little mechanistic details get to be so important. And which that's one thing I think is so important about all this basic research is you never know what tiny little detail you're going to discover that can then lead to a new fertility treatment or to a male contraceptive, which would be of interest. So by removing the cholesterol, the membrane becomes a lot more fluid and all these lipid rafts can move around. And basically the sperm just completely reorganizes its plasma membrane. And this is all made possible by the influx of calcium. In addition to the calcium influx, there is also entry of bicarbonate into the sperm. Um, and this changes the intracellular pH, it raises it a bit increase in intracellular bicarb and increase in intracellular calcium leads to a ton of signaling pathways. Signaling pathways we're all probably familiar with from intro cell bio, molecular bio courses. There's activation of cyclic AMP in the PKA pathway. There is the, the ERK pathway is activated. ROS reactive oxygen species are produced. And so all of these intracellular pathways sort of converge on phosphorylation of tyrosine residues within proteins. So there's going to be a ton of tyrosine phosphorylated. And actually, in addition to sort of levels of cholesterol in sperm, phosphorylation of tyrosine is a clinical marker for if the sperm have undergone capacitation. This process is occurring through out the sperm's journey in the female reproductive tract. And one of the reasons it's so interesting, I've already sort of hinted at, is that there are a ton of links to in vitro fertilization here. And sperm must be capacitated for IVF to work as well. So one of the things I'm really interested in when discovering these basic mechanisms is sort of understanding the who discovered them, when, and how. And so I might go on a little divergence into IVF right now. This process of capacitation was discovered in 1951 by two scientists working independently. One, uh, one scientist was M.C. Chang. He was working at the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. Um, and so he published this paper in Nature in October of 1951, where he observed in rats and ferrets and pigs, sheeps, cattle, and bats that sperm had to be in the female reproductive tract of said organism for a couple hours up to mo many, many hours, and they even say, quote, a few months in bats to have the ability to fuse with the egg. A few months? I know. That's insane. It's, yeah. So there's no data presented for that. It's just another citation to a different paper. I should look into this more. This was from 1952. The other researcher was C.R. Austin, who was an Australian, Australian scientist, and he observed the same thing and made a bunch of notes from the literature. And it was actually C.R. Austin who in 1952 published a paper in Nature called The Capacitation of the Mammalian Sperm. And so this is the first time that the word capacitation was used. 
And so these two scientists, C.R. Alston and M.C. Chang, are going to come up again. They are absolute leaders in the field of reproductive biology in the 1950s and the surrounding decades. Chang actually won the Lasker Award in 1954, and shortly thereafter, he made the really important discovery of creating the first in vitro fertilized organism um, that actually went on to be born. And Emma, do you want to guess what the first organism to be born by in vitro fertilization was? Mammalian organism, first mammalian organism. Um, I'm going to say that since in honor of the first cloned sheep, Dolly, I'm going to guess that it was a sheep. Oh, that's a good one. Especially because sheep are so important for pregnancy research. Yeah. Um, it was actually rabbits. Ah, oh, rabbits. Interesting. Rabbits, yes. So MC Chang used in vitro fertilization to give birth to a litter of rabbits, of black rabbits in 1959. And that actually came pretty quickly after he was one of the two people to discover capacitation. Um, so showing that was really a limiting factor in the ability to have in vitro fertilization work. The sperm need certain molecules in order to become fully active. This goes on just to finish up sort of this IVF tangent in case anyone was interested. On July 25th, 1978, Louise Joy Brown was born. And so she was the first person born by individual fertilization in 1978. And in 2010, Robert Edwards, who was one of the two scientists responsible for the first in vitro fertilization in humans, Robert Edwards won the Nobel Prize for this technology. His partner was Patrick Steptoe. However, Patrick Steptoe had died in 1988 and couldn't share the prize. So through this process of capacitation, which has really led to IVF and to all these new technological developments, the sperm now having undergone this process is ready to undergo the acrosomal reaction. Step four, the acrosomal reaction. So now that the sperm has undergone capacitation and it has reached the zona pellucida, this thick protein coat surrounding the oocyte, um, it's time for them to start interacting with each other. And so the next step in the fertilization process is called the acrosomal reaction. And this is the release of contents of the acrosome from the sperm into the space surrounding the oocyte. This acrosome reaction was discovered by Jean Clark Dan in 1952 in sea urchins. Yay, sea urchins! <laughs> so the acrosome is a large membrane-bound organelle that is created via the endomembrane system, um, specifically through the Golgi. And it is located at the tip of the head of a mature sperm. And so if you look at pictures of the sperm, basically the acrosome is located right at the very, very, very tip, um, pushed all the way up against the front. So this acrosome contains um, a bunch of different enzymes that are able to break down biomolecules. So there are acid glycohydrolases, proteinases, phosphatases, esterases, aryl sulfatases, and these proteolytic enzymes and other enzymes are able to break down some of the biomolecules in the zona pellucida 
Um, however, the exact mechanism by which this occurs is still unclear. Um, the acrosome is actually um, similar in ways to lysosomes found in your regular somatic cell um, that are responsible for degrading biomaterial. And similar to lysosomes, the acrosome has an acidic environment, um, which can aid in this degradation property. Interestingly, not all organisms um, have an an acrosome and not all organisms undergo an acrosomal reaction. However, in humans, um, the acrosomal reaction is required for fertilization to occur. Wait, that's so interesting. I thought this was yeah. really commonly shared among organisms. What are the some of the organisms that don't have an acrosomal reaction? And so acrosomes are not required in taxa such as sea anemones, nematodes, tiliost fishes. Yeah, the interesting one that popped out to me actually was nematodes because um, a common model organism is C. elegans, which is a nematode worm. And so I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah, I was just, given that I cross C. elegans like literally every day, I felt like I should know that. Yeah, I'm amazed by how much in reproduction, in sexually reproducing animals is not conserved. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of different variations, I feel like, on similar principles, but yeah, not always the same in surprising ways, like the fact that some organisms don't have an acrosome. Given that in most many species, this reaction is really important to allow the sperm and the egg to actually get close enough to each other to fuse, what can actually trigger this reaction? and it's actually unknown exactly where and when the acrosomal reaction happens in humans since doing those experiments in vivo is highly unethical. However, we can learn some things with in vitro studies and by looking at other organisms. And interestingly, um, in some organisms, sperm are already undergoing the acrosomal reaction before they ever reach the egg and things like this. It's actually a little bit unclear, you know, when this is happening in humans. Sounds like a lot more complicated than the textbook makes it sound, than the textbook makes it seems when it's step one, two, three, four, five, and it's, it's not that simple. Exactly. It's really not that simple. I mean, we don't even know like where most of the sperm are undergoing this reaction, but we, we can learn some things in vitro that might point to potential in vivo mechanisms. Human sperm are in the presence of some of these zona pellucida proteins, um, specifically ZP3, this can induce the acrosomal reaction, um, the binding of the sperm to the zona pellucida and some of those protein-protein interactions might be one of the triggers. Interestingly, um, we're going to learn a little bit more here from our friends, the sea urchins, um, which was fun fact, the first animal where the acrosomal reaction was described. So for sea urchins, the acrosomal reaction can also be triggered by physical processes. So it can be triggered just by the salt water itself and the fact that it's a little bit basic or with literally just direct contact with a solid surface. So they just hit something and that'll trigger the acrosomal reaction, which I thought was really cool. Wait, that's so cool, especially for you and all your tension research, right? Like Exactly. Yeah, I'm all about mechanical forces. So it's interesting because it, it sort of points to this idea that you know, it might not just be biochemical signaling. There might be other signals happening here as well. Going along the same vein of 
you know, when in doubt, it's probably calcium. Um, this acrosomal reaction is actually um, a calcium dependent reaction. And so you need to have calcium in order for the acrosome to fuse with the plasma membrane of the sperm and release its contents. Yeah, that's all the ways that we know so far about, you know, what can trigger the acrosomal reaction, um, even though we don't know which of those are physiologically relevant in, in humans. We have learned a little bit more detail about this in mice. However, this obviously is not a perfect model for humans, especially since I mentioned before, they have one less ZP protein than we do. In mice, um, it's been shown that sperm can bind to ZP3, um, which will then induce the acrosome reaction. And then after the reaction occurs, the sperm can interact with ZP2 to facilitate um, the plasma membranes of the sperm and the egg coming together to fuse. Another sort of cool tidbit from um, fertilization in other animals besides humans um, is that in some invertebrate species, again, circling back to the ocean, there are some species where um, upon induction of the acrosomal reaction, there's this structure that's formed called the acrosomal process. And this is essentially a long finger-like protrusion that will push through the zona pellucida and sort of push the plasma membrane of the sperm towards the membrane of the um, oocyte to facilitate the fusion of the two membranes um, to make the zygote. And this is an actin-dependent process. So basically actin polymerization is pushing um, this membrane forward. And so this happens in organisms like starfish. As someone who used to study actin polymerization, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but this does not happen in mammalian cells from what I could find. That's really cool. It sounds like a little harpoon. Basically, yeah. Yeah, go actin. Exactly. So the acrosomal reaction is our important first interaction between the sperm and the egg in order to begin the process of fertilization. Step five, the cortical reaction. So following the acrosomal reaction, the sperm has released these enzymes and then the sperm and the egg need to fuse. And for this to happen, the sperm acts sort of like a, a key. And so it has ligands on it that bind to receptors on the oocyte. And there are a couple of different proteins that have been implicated in this process. Some of the best known ones are the interaction between Azuma-1 and Juno. Azuma-1 is a protein on the sperm plasma membrane, and Juno is a GPI-anchored receptor on the oocyte. In addition to this interaction, which leads to sperm and egg binding, there was this really cool paper published from researchers at University of Virginia called Phosphatidylserine on Viable Sperm and Phagocytic Machinery and Oocytes Regulate Mammalian Fertilization. It was published in Nature Communications in 2019, and they show that sperm expose a bunch of phosphatidylserine on their plasma membrane, and this phosphatidylserine can bind receptors called BAI1-3 on the oocyte, and this leads to a downstream ELMO1, RAC1 signaling pathway, which can lead to fusion. And in this paper, they show that this phosphatidylserine binding to 
to BAI1 slash 3 or by 1 by 3 actually can lead to sperm fusing with myoblast as well. So this interaction finally allows the sperm and the egg to fuse. Once this happens, the cortical reaction takes place. Really quick, I just want to say, like, it's, I feel like we're learning more and more. I feel like, especially right now in biology, about the roles of um, phospholipids and signaling processes. And so it's really cool that um, there's like actually a lipid component and like a lipid signal here um, for this process. Oh, absolutely. It's super cool. This is like really cool stuff. And it's so recent too. Like this is only a year ago and the implications are really impressive for, so if you want to say increase sperm fertility, you could think about over expressing more phosphatidylserine on the sperm. Or if you wanted to think of a male contraceptive, you could think of ways to sort of block up all the phosphatidylserine so it can't bind the receptor on the oocyte or find ways to get rid of phosphatidylserine on the sperm. Um, so the applications for this basic discovery are, are really exciting. And I also really wanted to point out how cool the researchers are who did this paper. Um, they have sort of a, a news article just um, published through the UVA Health Newsroom where they talk about some of the same things we've been saying about the egg is not just sitting around waiting for a sperm to um, fertilize it. Like it's actively doing things like expressing receptors that the sperm can bind. Um, and so they make a point to talk about the active role in the egg, which is, which is really cool. So now that a sperm, a single sperm, has fused with the egg, the egg needs to prevent any more sperm from fusing, at least in um, humans and in most mammals. And this is achieved through the cortical reaction. So Emma, I remember when you and I were talking about some topics we could do for this basic bio episode for the sex ed series. Um, and like the first thing we both thought of is cortical reaction. Yep. It's so cool. I literally remember my professor teaching us about this because I had no idea that this was a thing that happened. I don't want to, you know, spoil what, what it is yet, but um, just completely fascinated by the whole process, especially this step. Yeah. It's one of the only things I remember from like basic intro cell biology, because it is super cool. Um, and so basically what's happening is that the egg is releasing a bunch of cortical granule contents, which then hardens the egg and seals it off so no more sperm can enter. Um, that's it in a nutshell, but the details are like super cool and honestly are still being worked out. So the whole point of this process is to seal the egg off from the fusion of any other sperm. Um, and so the entry of multiple sperm into the egg would be known as polyspermy. And it's really important to study this process because it's something that happens a lot in in vitro fertilization, even in humans. So in humans, if polyspermy occurs, it would not be a viable pregnancy there are too many chromosomes, but there's this really, really interesting case study published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so what it found just shows you how crazy things are happening and we're only just discovering them. It was by Gabbett et al. And they identified a set of twins that were identical on their mother's side, but were siblings on their father's side. So the likely explanation for this was that a single egg was fertilized by two different sperm and then like split. That is cool. I didn't realize that 
that was viable, but you never know. It says it's like extremely, 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 extremely rare. And this is the first documented case of it, which was only made possible through some of the new and cheaper uh, next generation sequencing technologies. So normally this doesn't happen in humans, or if it does, um, it's not a viable zygote. But in other animals, this does occur. In insects and reptiles and birds, it's actually really common. And so they have different mechanisms to prevent the fusion of the pronuclei. And so it turns out chickens actually can have 20 to 60 sperm inside a single egg at fertilization. 20 to 60. That's too many. <laughs> I know, that's like a ton. That's a ton. And um, so this is even a ton for avian species, which in general polyspermy happens in. And they have all these mechanisms that degrade um, all but one sperm once they're inside the egg. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like chicken eggs are massive. So I guess they can fit. Yeah, with how small the sperm is, like you can pack that full, right? Like you can fit so many sperm in an egg. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, that's a lot. That's crazy. I know. And even among mammals, pigs are one exception that have higher rates of polyspermy and they must have other mechanisms to correct for this and get rid of all those other sperm even after they enter the egg. But in humans, like I said, this is super important for IVF. One of the main ways that we talked about in step one of this process is that the multiple sperm fusing with the egg is prevented is that from the release of a couple hundred million sperm, only a couple hundred are getting to the region where the egg is. And so that's a huge reduction in just the number of sperm trying to fuse with the egg. Um, so that's one way to prevent polyspermy. Uh, the next way is this cortical reaction. So when the sperm has fused, this results in the release of calcium from the smooth ER. So again, rise in <laughs> free intracellular calcium is going to be what's responsible for this reaction. And this results in the fusion of these cortical granules with the plasma membrane. And this process was really interesting to me because I am interested in neurodegenerative diseases in my research and regenerative um, re neuroregeneration. And this seems really similar to how like neurotransmitters are released. It's involving the same proteins. It's the T snares and the V snares and the synaptotagmin and the RABs. It, these, it's, it's the same process, basically a synaptic vesicle release. But the main difference here is that once these cortical granules are released, they're not renewed, unlike say um, synaptic vesicles. And so for the past few decades, it's been thought that the cortical granules sort of sit around with the egg, waiting on the sperm, doing nothing. Um, but in recent years, the dynamic nature of these cortical granules has been coming into light. And so I'd say that we still really don't fully understand it. So it seems like cortical granules are actually being produced in a continuous process. And so the newly synthesized granules are um, translocated up to the cortex at the time of ovulation. Um, so they're not just like sitting around there the entire time. And this is a cytoskeleton dependent process. And this has been observed from sea urchins and humans and a bunch of other different species. So back to our friend C.R. Alston, who coined the term capacitation. He was actually the first person to observe cortical granules in a mammalian cell. 
and he observed them in hamster oocytes. And so he was actually able to even trace that they were derived from the Golgi. Um, and then he was able to observe their release. And these cortical granules are only 0.2 to 0.6 microns in diameter. And they're filled with a bunch of different proteins that are all responsible for sort of sealing off the egg. And it's amazing to me that actually what these proteins are isn't fully known. Um, we know that there are a ton of proteases. These proteases are the main thing responsible for sort of hardening the plasma membrane of the egg. And then there are a ton of glycosylated components, um, some ovoperoxidases, just a ton of other proteins, uh, but it's an active area of research to sort of figure out what these proteins are in different species and exactly how they're able to seal this egg off. And so before we end the cortical reaction, I just want to turn again to our friends um, in the echinoderms, <laughs> our echinoderm friends. In marine species, they have what's called a fast and a slow block to polyspermia. And so while mammals have something very similar, the speed component um, isn't as clear. So um, in a review by Janice Evans published in March 2020 called Preventing Polyspermia in Mammalian Eggs, Contributions of the Membrane Block and Other Mechanisms, she points out that this fast and slow process is kind of a little different in echinoderms and in humans. But in echinoderms, when the sperm binds and fuses with the egg, it opens up a ton of sodium channels. And when sodium then goes down its electrochemical gradient, it flows into the cell, and this causes a positive membrane potential like nearly immediately. And this positive membrane potential then prevents any other sperm from fusing with the egg. And so this is called the fast block. And then within 30 to 60 seconds after this fast block, the cortical granules have fused and sort of sealed off the egg in this slower process. And so this is the two-step process um, that's really described in a lot of developmental textbooks, but recent evidence is showing that the, the human and other mammalian blocks to polyspermia is just a, a little different. And again, our friend the marine species were the first organisms in which this block was discovered uh, in 1919. It was discovered by a scientist named Just in sand dollars, which is pretty cool. In addition to the fast polyspermy blocks discovered in sand dollars and in starfish, which in 1956, Tyler et al. were able to use microelectrodes to record this change in membrane potential. Multiple other organisms uh, that are not marine also have these electrical blocks. Um, this is really important actually for frogs. And so in frog eggs, when the sperm fuses and binds and um, has a depolarization of the, the membrane, this actually increases chloride permeability. And so then this like creates a low chloride environment, which is more conducive to fertilization in the surrounding Area. So that's pretty cool that it not just like blocks additional sperm from fusing, but then creates the surrounding environment to be more favorable. So I hope this could convince you a bit why Emma and I find the cortical reaction mechanism just so cool and remember it from our introductory cell bio classes. So now that we have set the stage where a single sperm has fused with the egg, we are at the last step in the fertilization process for this episode. Step six, 
nuclei fusion. So Carrie Ann mentioned that during capacitation, there is an increase in calcium levels in the oocyte. And in addition to initiating the cortical reaction, this also results in the egg undergoing its second meiotic division. So eggs, when they're initially being formed, will undergo the first meiotic division, but will be paused before the second meiotic division and will remain that way unless fertilized. So once the second meiotic division occurs, um, that generates the female pronucleus, which is essentially a haploid genome, so one copy of each chromosome surrounded by a nuclear envelope. So from the sperm's perspective, um, once the plasma membrane of the sperm fuses with the plasma membrane of the egg, the contents of the sperm, which is pretty much just its DNA and a few other organelles and things like that, is released into the cytosol of the egg, and this will lead to the creation of the male pronucleus. Um, Carrie Ann mentioned earlier that the sperm DNA is very transcriptionally repressed, and this is because DNA in the sperm is bound to proteins that are called protamines. Um, these protamines will replace histones and lead to very tight compaction of DNA through a series of disulfide bonds. And the egg actually has glutathione in the cytosol to reduce these disulfide bonds to allow for the DNA to become decondensed and for the protamines to be replaced with regular histones. Interestingly, if you're interested in or a DNA organization, um, the DNA is compaction is actually different when the DNA is bound to protamines versus when it's bound to histones. So once the male and female pronucleus have nuclei have been formed, um, the centrosome that came along with the male pronucleus produces an aster. So this basically spidery array of microtubules that will reach out and interact with the female pronucleus and begin to pull these nuclei together. Once the nuclei are closer together, um, the nuclear envelope of the male and female pronucleus will break down and form a spindle and undergo the very first mitotic cell division. So the zygote never actually has a diploid nucleus until it gets to the two-cell stage. This is different in other organisms, going back yet again to our friend the sea urchin. Um, in sea urchins, the male and female pronuclei actually fuse to create one diploid nucleus before undergoing the first mitotic division. And also a fun fact that instead of um, this totally different protein compacting the sperm DNA, it's um, simply compacted with a sperm-specific histone. Um, yeah, and so once the zygote has undergone its first mitotic division, it is on its way to um, dividing more and more and more and more and eventually um, turning into a baby of whatever the you know animal species is. <laughs> Yeah, so stay tuned to our next episode on maternity. So we wanted to close out today by reiterating that the process of fertilization is a really dynamic process in which both the sperm and the egg play a very active role. And we hope that you will all keep this in mind the next time that you are discussing fertilization. 
Yeah, check out Emily Martin's paper, 1990. Super interesting, really great read. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get the chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home to YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Amelia Hallworth and Wei Ying, and the deputy editors for the sex and reproduction issue, Kelsey Castle and Wei Ying. And finally, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts.